This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, Episode 3. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Hello and welcome to the Six Figure Home Studio. I am Chris Graham and today I get the honor of interviewing Mr. Six Figure Home Studio himself, Brian Hood. Now, Brian is a super interesting guy, and the reason I accepted when he offered, hey, do you want to co-host this podcast with me, was because I knew first and foremost it'd be fun, secondly, it'd be interesting, and third and most importantly, I knew I would learn a ton from Brian. And here's the thing I already have. Just working on this podcast, it's been incredible as he's offered me advice for my mastering business on how I can do better, serve more people, have better customer satisfaction, and just generally be a badass like Brian Hood. So anyways, welcome to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. Without further ado, my interview with Brian Hood. Well, hey, man, I am really excited to hear your story and to hear more about, you know, how Brian Hood, how you became, you know, the Six Figure Home Studio guy and, you know, what that journey looked like. What's your studio story? Where does it start as far as you getting into audio? Yeah. So my story is basically starts in high school, my 11th grade year when I thought, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? (laughs) What is it that I'm going to do in the future? I had no direction, no purpose that I was going towards. And then I was thinking, I like music. Okay, cool. Awesome. What am I going to do? Studio sounds cool. I think I might like to run a studio one day. So I kind of had a vision for it early on in my life in high school of all places. And it was to the point where I wasn't even going to go to college. I didn't apply for college. I didn't get good grades in high school. I think I had a 2.8, 2.9 GPA. Mm. Um, For those of you who are familiar with the ACT, I got a 19 out of 36 on my ACT. So just below average in everything. (laughs) And instead of that, I started touring. So that was where I kind of developed my ear for music. And from there, it was a lot of learning the basics of running a business in a band. Um, A lot of people, they start bands. They wonder why they can't get traction. And they don't realize that it's actually a business, very much like a studio. It's very much a business. So if your band just wants to do the creative, fun parts of being in a band, you're not going to make it, period. And I've seen people complaining about this recently, about how they couldn't get a leg up. Um, I think this, if you're going to be in a band that's successful, you need at least one person in that band that can run it like a business. I was that person in my band. So I learned a lot about turning a creative act something that was a hobby at once and turn it into a profitable endeavor. So the band was never that profitable. We did make money and I I was able to save up some money in that band. But then I rolled that money into, you know, from years and years of tour, uh, putting out, we got signed, we toured, you know, 44 states and eight countries. And I managed to save (laughs) $6,000 at the end of the band to to start my studio. And that's how I kind of rolled all of that into uh, stepping up into a new world of audio. Well, one of the things I like about you, man, is you are a passionate self-educator and you've mentioned this before. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into that band, how you went from just a dude to suddenly a musician to suddenly in a band. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I get obsessive about things. So like if I, if I find what I consider like my calling in life, or at least at that season of my life, I get obsessive about learning uh, as much as I can about that. We talked about that in early episodes, so I'm not going to dwell yeah. on that too much. But when it came to drums, uh, I actually wasn't a drummer when I bought my drum set. I was playing bass in a band. I didn't have any bass gear. 
And on my 16th birthday, instead of buying a car like every one of my friends, I said, nah, I'm going to get a drum set. And so I bought a drum set off eBay from the drummer of a band called Fireflight, which I think they're doing pretty well now. Um, they're like a Christian rock band and maybe they've crossed over to the mainstream, but the drummer from Fireflight, his name was Fee. That was his nickname, at least. He's not drumming for them anymore. Bought it for eBay, on eBay for like $600, $700. It was a Mapex Pro M series. Mm. Drove, met him halfway between, he's in Florida. I was in Alabama. We met in Georgia. Picked it up and that was my car. <laughs> I didn't own a car for another year after that. And I just obsessed over learning everything I could about that, even though I wasn't a drummer. I didn't, I don't know why I did that. I, I think my band was probably really mad at me, but that led to me starting my band. And the amount of time I put into that, uh, I was drumming in a band within six months. Within 12 months of playing the drums, I was touring. And so it was a rapid progression for me. So I kind of find a hobby that I like. Uh, I roll that into something that's a little bit more than a hobby. And then I find a way to monetize that. That's kind of how I've gone. Well, I guess tell us a little bit more about, you know, the band is done touring. You've got six grand in the bank. You're rolling it into a studio business. Walk us through, you know, that thought process. What happened? Yeah. So the wrapping things up with my band um, actually didn't really end on a great note. I haven't really told that story. I probably won't, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I ended things with that and I had six grand in the bank and I thought, well, now, now's the time, I guess. I mean, what's, what's next in my life? So it was like January, 2009, bought a bunch of stuff on Sweetwater, which there's actually a blog article on the sixfigurehomestudio.com that details this as the very first article I posted. I posted every piece of gear uh, that I bought back then, but it came out to about $5,500 around five grand, actually, I think. And that gear got me through probably the first three to four years of recording. Mm. Um, I, I bought little plugins here and there. I may have bought, you know, one or two extra microphones. Um, I may have added to a few things here and there as far as instruments. But overall, I don't think in the first five years of my career, I spent more than 20 grand on anything regarding gear or software or instruments or my studio itself. And so I always had a place that I rented and lived in, um, starting in my parents' basement and then moving into my first commercial building. Um, I just started small and worked my way up. And so it was super easy to get started with that little bit, that little bit of my own money. It wasn't a huge investment for me. Um, I was able to turn that into my first paid project very quickly. I, I've told the story a little bit on the blog, but I, f the first day I got my gear in the studio, January, I'm going to say mid-January 2009, I stayed up for 44 hours straight. 44 hours straight just playing with shit, figuring out what I was doing, hooking it all up. Um, to the point where like my parents thought I was insane. that thought I was on drugs. I, I was like, you know, they, they had gone to bed for the night, woken up the next morning. I'm still up. They're left for work the next day. Uh, I'm still up. They get home from work. I'm still up. They go to bed that night. I'm still up. They wake up the next morning. I'm still up. They go to work that morning. I'm still up. Finally, I crash. Like that, <laughs> that was how I was. It was another thing where I'd found something that I was obsessive about. Um, it's part of my personality. If I find something that I obsess about, uh, I just keep going down the rabbit hole of learning as much as I can. So I was Googling stupid shit like how to change tempo in Pro Tools. That's one search I specifically remember. I got to a point where I was just recording my own music, didn't know how to change the tempo in Pro Tools. And I was just learning from scratch. Um, plenty of YouTube videos about it. Plenty of free guides to get me started. And I just recorded my own free demos of my own music. Um, I posted a couple videos of me playing drums to stuff. And I got my first paid gig. And it was my friend's band. And I didn't do it for free, which a lot of people might. And I charged them 50 bucks a song. And that was 
amazing. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting paid to record music. This is sick. Yeah, it's an intense thing when you, you know, book that first paid project and have that fire under your butt to, hey, you need to figure out how to use this and, you know, give them something that they won't ask for, you know, their money back <laughs> on, <laughs> you know, having to, having someone's money and having to deliver is a great teacher, you know. So I guess tell us a little bit more about that first project. You know, what, what was that like? Yeah, so I did five songs, 50 bucks a song, $250. We spent, I think it was like 40 hours total on the project. Mm. And so if you do the math on that, uh, it's something like six bucks an hour. And it was probably actually a little less than that at the end of the day. Um, I made less than minimum wage on that first project. And that's completely fine. I liked learning as I went. I did a flat rate per song because I knew I'd be Googling a lot of shit as I went. And probably the first six months of my career, every single project was a flat rate per song because I knew I was still learning as I went. So um, after that, I switched to a day rate because I got to the point where I didn't need to constantly look up things. So it wasn't on me. I wasn't the delay. I wasn't the slowest person in the studio. It was switched to now the bands are the slow things. We're waiting on the bands to get their parts together, the bands to uh, set up their gear, the bands to, you know, when I, when I realized that, that they were the bottleneck now, I figured, okay, I have some bands that are very, very prepared. They come in, they have other songs written, they have other lyrics written, they have other parts down and I'm not going to charge them the same amount per song as an artist who comes in and spends twice the amount of time because they weren't prepared. It's not fair for either band, um, sp- specifically the band that came prepared. So I started doing a day rate and I started out at $100 a day. Not a lot, but it was enough to pay the bills because I was still at this time. Remember, I'm in my parents' basement at this point. The first full year of my career, I was in my parents' basement and bands were staying there. They were sleeping on the floor. Um, I would just call, I would refer to my parents as my roommates. <laughs> I think I got that from a movie somewhere. That's and awesome. so I'd be like, hey, these are my roommates. <laughs> But I mean, everyone, I wasn't like hiding anything, but I, I had to like kudos to my parents, kudos to my parents for like, Hey, I'm not going to college first of all. And they said, that's cool. You can tour in a band. So hats off to them for that. Um, s- second thing that they did was awesome was, Hey, can I start a studio in your basement? Uh, I'm going to be playing drums down there. I'm going to be recording loud, heavy bands. Uh, they're going to be screaming in your laundry room. Uh, is that cool? And oh, and they're going to sleep down there too. And you've never met any of them. And there's five smelly guys. Is that cool? Sure, sure. My parents are like, yeah, that's totally cool. And it, without them, I could not have done this because I had the support of them to do this. And now, if you don't have supportive parents or you don't have a place that you can do that, uh, there's always some sort of workaround. So don't get discouraged. But man, my parents were super helpful at first. And that first year of recording, I was able to take that, what I was, started out at $50 a song, then moved up to $100 a day, then up to probably about $150 a day towards the end of that year, I had saved another six grand. <laughs> so I got all my money back um, and I turned that into my first commercial facility. And so this space that I moved into was about an hour away. It was still in Alabama in the middle of nowhere. Called, it was in Lacey Springs, Alabama. And I had no rental history and I was like 21 years old. So this landlord's like, and you want to put a studio in here, man? Like... <laughs> I was like, yes, I want to also cut a hole in your wall so I can have a, a control room and glass between that and the live room because they had this huge 1,200 square foot uh, live room space with like high ceilings. It was amazing. Drum sounded great in there. And somehow with the framing, there was a double wall between it. So it was like this really thick wall between the control, like perfect sound isolation. And it wasn't even a studio. It was just some random warehouse building that happened to have bathroom, kitchen, shower, bedrooms, living room. Like it was really cool space. And I was like, okay, well, I got six grand. What if I prepay six months of rent? And he's like, sure, cool, I'll do it. 
turned out to be the best landlord I've ever had in my life. It was like wow. super, super, I got lucky with that. But it all started from my parents' basement and the ability to save that money up, living on you know very little money and uh, spending very little money. I was able to save enough money to then pay six months rent into a new facility, which I was there for two years after that, which was awesome. So January, 2010, I moved into there. And that's when I shifted my rates up to 200 a day. And bands were coming in from like out of town to work or, or was it mostly local clients? Yeah. So at first it was my friends and then acquaintances and then friends of their friends. And so I started locally, completely locally. Mm. And eventually I had bands coming from other cities, which was cool to see. So Birmingham, I'm in North Alabama. Birmingham is about an hour away. Uh, I had bands come down from Nashville. I had bands come up from Louisiana. So it was like a slow, steady, like snowball. I got rolling. Like I, I had a couple bands that were pretty well known in my local scene. And then they had friends in regional bands in the other areas. And then I would record those bands and I would record, say one band uh, I record in Louisiana. And I had like six more bands come from that one band, from that one area. And so it was like a snowball effect or, or a, a chain reaction of some sort or butterfly effect where, you know, you do one band in one area and that fans out to other areas. And that was what sustained me. It was all word of mouth at the beginning, working with my network, um, working with bands that uh, referred me to other bands. That was how I got all my work. And that sustained me for quite a while doing it that way. Well, I, you know, I think a, a really important moment in any small business owner's life, and I, I know for me, it, the same is true. Um, and I'm curious to hear about it from you is tell me about the first stranger who hired you, the first person who wasn't a friend of a friend. And what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was a band from Alabama called By Blood and Iron. <laughs> it was a metalcore band. And they actually had a lot of the same members that the band Era has. Mm. And I will, I'll, say, I'll go ahead and admit, I was at a bit of an advantage that a lot of people wouldn't have. It was somebody I had never heard of, but it was people that had heard of me because of the band I was in prior. So I was in a band called My Children, My Bride, which is like a metalcore band. They're surprisingly still around today if you look them up they don't sound anything like we used to completely different band now there's only one original member so uh take it for what what it's worth but we were pretty well known in our in our small niche at the time so you know at the end of 2009 they had toured with azalea dying uh parkway drive they had toured with um, unearth or i was in the band when we toured with unearth so it, some bands at that time that were big uh, and well known they were basically at the top of their game as far as I can tell in that band's history. So I was able to, able to leverage that uh, existence or that popularity into bands that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Now, that faded quickly. Like I, me leaving the band, we never announced anything about me leaving. Um, there was never any big like you know, lamb goat post about it, which is like a gossip news site. But um, I was able to get my first like initial snowball rolling. And from there, everything that I got was based on my prior work. So it wasn't like I got these, got these bands in uh, that were just like in awe of my old band. No, it was, they knew who I was. It differentiated me enough to know that I was trustworthy and that I could do good work. My work spoke for itself. And then after that, I was able to establish myself, find my sound, and then start uh, growing my business even more from year to year to year. That's awesome. You know, I think about, you know, one of our previous episodes when we were talking about college and, you know, the sticky situation with an audio degree and what that looks like in the real world. I, I think it's interesting to hear you say, you know, every project I book was based on the last project I booked, you know, your, your work spokes for itself. And I think that that, um, that's a common theme. I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone who has said, you know, I graduated, I got a degree 
And then a band called up and, and asked me about that degree. And then they hired me to work on their project. I've never, ever, ever heard of anyone who has said something like that. It's that's because always, that's never happened. I don't think it has ever happened. And uh, yeah, I was on your website and I saw you have a degree from uh, um, Fall Cell University. <laughs> I would like to hire you based on that single piece of information. Oh, man. So. Yeah, you know, I th- I think it's it's really cool what you're saying about, you know, you would do a project and then you would get more work based on how that project turned out. Tell me about, you know, when you when that snowball started to really roll, when the first time that you were like, "Whoa, I'm doing this. I can call myself a professional audio engineer." Yeah, so technically I could call myself professional year 1. Um I I made a full-time income my first year out of my mm. parents' basement. I made $29,000 that year. And nice. so, yeah, first year recording, that's incredible. Like I, I, I look back on that and I'm, I can't believe that I pulled that in the first year. Uh, when I did my taxes at the end of the year uh, with my CPA, uh, it was like, damn, my first year, this is actually really, really good. Probably about halfway, by that summer, that's where the snowball started taking off and I was booked up in advance. That was when I was like actually wall to wall with my projects. Wow. Um, the good thing about being in a small niche like heavy music and there are other niches like that out there, is that people all know each other in that niche. And so when I would record one band, every single person in my, in my area knew that band. And as far as my competitors went, I sounded better, if not at least as good than my competitors. Um, my closest competitor was actually a guy named Joseph McQueen out of Birmingham. Mm. And I think for the heavy music sound, uh, I did a better job than him at least for the price that I charged. He may have been a little bit more expensive than me. He had a nicer facility than me. He was more experienced than me. But I ended up getting more of that style of band and he shifted away from that and stayed more in the pop and rock world. So he made his name in that world and is out in LA doing some stuff there now. But I kind of stayed in the heavy music niche and dominated that in my area. I didn't have a whole lot of competition then. There's a lot more competition now and there's ways you can get around that. Um, it, It all comes down to just being the best in your area, period. But it it wasn't as hard back then. So I definitely established myself as the go-to guy for having music pretty early on. And I'd say by the summertime, that snowball was rolling pretty well. And by the end of that year, when I was ready to move out on my own, that's when that snowball had grown to the point where I was like, all right, I can, I can commit to a, at least a year of this in this commercial facility and see where it goes from there. Well, it sounds like I'm impressed. Uh, 29,000 in your first year, having just bought Pro Tools <laughs> is uh, not, probably not too many people can make that claim. So kudos on that. But I guess, you know, tell us about the setbacks. What was it, what were your biggest struggles as a, as a new studio owner? What was the stuff that didn't measure up to your expectations about this dream you had of recording bands for a living? Oh yeah, that's 2011, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll go to 2010 was a good year too. Like I had earned uh, maybe up to 36,000 or 42,000, something like that. Like just shot, or just around 40,000 my second year. And I was like, okay, this is going really, really well. 2010 was a good year. Um, I settled into my commercial facility. Uh, it was nothing incredible, but I had, you know, I made it nice. I built a vocal booth in there. I had a big live room. Uh, I had lodging for bands, bunk beds. It was actually a really cool setup. And if it were anywhere but that city, I would have probably stayed in it. But um, then 2011 came. 2011 was the year things really started to take off for me. That's when I started getting more label projects. That's when I started getting uh, more well-established bands. And that's when I started working more 80 to 100 hour weeks <laughs> because I did not know how to pace myself. I didn't know how to say no yet. That's when you, okay, 
this is the danger a lot of people run into. They hit the point of they're getting a lot of work. They don't know how to actually schedule it properly. They don't know how to actually say no to things or at least say no temporarily to things. So, uh, you know, a band would come to me and it's like, hey man, we want to come to you next month. Here's our budget. I'm like, oh shit. Okay, yeah, I'd love to do that. That's a lot of money. Um, sure, I'll, I'll fit you in. And so I would try to squeeze them between two projects that I had no business squeezing them between. And in reality, if I would have just said, no, I cannot do it, guys. I don't have any openings until two months from now. They would have probably been patient enough to wait because they wanted to work with me. But instead, yeah. I sacrificed uh, my own sanity in, in order to fit it in this unrealistic gap. And this went on for the entire year. I will say the peak of it was after, right after finishing an album that I did for a band called A Plea for Purging. I was mixing an album. And I got it last minute and I took it on because I was the only mixing engineer capable of mixing it that was also available last minute to mix it. So there are a lot of guys up for it. Uh, and it was an album called The Marriage Between Heaven and Hell. So the caveat of me getting this record was I had to start it ne- like next week. Like it was mm. Wednesday. I had to start on Monday and it had to be done that Friday and the master Ooh. shipped in. And so, Ouch. Uh, yeah, I got, it was 10 songs. And so two of the guys from the band came into the studio and were there while I was mixing it after I'd set it up. So I spent Monday through probably Wednesday. I was really slow back then. So Monday through Wednesday was my setup. And so I spent the first couple days, two or three days, setting things up for the mix, getting it prepared. And then the band came in basically Wednesday through Friday to actually sit in on the mix to give me their feedback. There's only a couple of the band members because some of them were out of, out of the country or out of town or something on vacation. And just a side note here, if you're a label, do not set a release date for the record until you have the masters in your hand. This is the reason they got into this, this, Amen. this situation. Now, it Amen. came to my benefit because I got this record that I would have otherwise not gotten, which is cool. So I got to underline that. Yes. That's, that's such wisdom. That's just like the cardinal sin of an immature manager or an immature label or an immature band is setting a release date before you have product in hand. Yep. But you know what? I was up to the task, so I said I'd take it on and I would do it. And I... And this is what basically started my shitty year. <laughs> so this is actually probably summertime. Uh, I can't remember exactly when I did this, but this is the beginning of like, this is like my, f- my l- one of the last few hundred hour weeks I did. And so this band, I'm doing like 15 hour, 16 hour days. I'm literally not even going to my room to sleep. Even though I live in the same building that I work out of, <laughs> I wasn't even going to my room. I was literally working from wake up to, to going to sleep. And I would sleep on the sofa in my control room. And I would wake up and I would work the whole day. And then the band came in, we're doing everything. We're even adding some extra effects and stuff that's not even part of mixing work. Just because I like the band a lot. We wanted to add some cool things. We added a motorcycle revving up to one part as like a, as like a swell in. Um, we have my motorcycle in the big live room and we're just revving it up, recording it. We added it to a part. We hit a fart somewhere in one of the songs and you can audibly hear it, but no one ever notices it, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> but we ended up doing a 24-hour shift. Ooh. So from f- Thursday at 3 p.m. to Friday at 3 p.m., we did not stop working. Um, I had a one-hour break at 7 a.m. where we went to breakfast at Hardy's because this is Alabama, remember? And we got the record done. We shipped it out at 3 p.m. We overnighted it the final day and got it done on time. Kudos to me. Kudos to the band for doing it. We didn't even have revisions. It was literally, they signed off on it in the studio we shipped it out and that was the final mix <laughs> and it ended up pretty good. I was pretty happy about it. Not long after that project, which was a huge, huge soul suck on my life, uh, as much as fun as it kind of was, it was also a huge soul suck. I had a band come in to do a record 
It was uh, 10 songs. We took three, four weeks to do it. Uh, I think three weeks and we couldn't get vocals done. And this was the downhill slide of my depressive year. The band left. They didn't have the vocals done because the vocalist's voice went out. She was a really good singer, but her voice was just screwed up for some reason. They left for a few weeks for her vocals to recover. And they came, when they came back, the entire album was lost. And, and a lesson I will never forget, I learned that Pro Tools disk allocation does not always save the files in the actual folder uh, for the band. If you import any tracks as part of a template or um, from another session, or if you move folders, or if anything happens to where you're importing tracks from anything else, a lot of times those tracks will be recording to the old folder. Yeah. And so... Been there. Yep. So back then, I was a cheapskate, and this is when I, before I learned the lesson the hard way, I would delete files to save hard drive space. Really stupid, and I laugh at it now that I think about it, but really, that was like, oh, this makes sense. I'm not using this. I'm done with this band. We've signed off on this two years ago. I'll delete this. Well, it turns out one of the folders I had recorded to that I deleted was this band. Mm. And it was another band that I deleted their stuff, but this band's files were actually recorded. So I opened the session and every single file was missing. It was nowhere to be found. And when I looked at the disk allocation, it was, on a, it was in a folder that I had just deleted like a week prior. Oh boy. And so I had to make the phone call to this band. You know, that album we spent three weeks recording, it's gone. Mm. And so you have two options at this point. Unfortunately, I'm not joking. Uh, we have two options. One, I can refund all of your money and you can go re-record it somewhere else. Or two, I will be happy to re-record. I say happy in, quote, in air quotes here, but <laughs> I'll be happy to re-record it all for free plus a couple of additional songs for free. And they went with that option. Um, they weren't stoked about it, but we re-recorded it all. Um, they were actually really happy with the, how the new recordings turned out. We did all the vocals, which uh, her voice was recovered by then. And it turned out great. But my soul was gone. Working for three and a half weeks, four weeks maybe, with no pay at the end of an already brutal year. This was like October, September, October, something like that, 2011. It was awful. And so I was like, okay, I got to do something to change this up. I got to stop doing this. And so there was two things I decided. The first was I need to get the fuck out of here. I was 30 to 45 minutes from my nearest friends which I never saw anymore. I lost touch with all my friends because no one wanted to drive out where I was because I'm in the middle of nowhere. At the end of the workday, I was too tired to drive out to any of my friends. So I lost touch with all of those people and no social life. Um, I threw a housewarming party with where one person showed up. Like that was where I was mm. in this like studio world. It was like no one there. And so like it was a really low point that year and I was ready for a change. So I decided... Um, earlier that year, I had visited my sister in Nashville. And I was like, okay, I want to look for a new place. I want to move to Nashville. None of the bands I recorded really were from there, maybe one or two. So it wasn't like I was going up there for the massive music scene. It was more for the actual <laughs> mental stability of my like future. It was to like change up my life. So when you're in a point of like deep, dark depression and you feel like you have no control over anything, which is like a huge part of depression where you just feel like you've lost control of things. One of the things I started doing in September of that year was working out. Uh, that was one of the things I started to do to get out of that. I was trying to take control of certain things like my weight, my strength, uh, health. I started 2011? 2011. End of 2011. Yeah. I started taking, taking care of myself. Lost, God, 30, 40 pounds. I uh, started lifting weights. I you know, got my squat from you know, failing at 85 pounds up to where I could do at least 225 at that point, I think. Um, deadlift was around the same maybe a little more 
And, you know, that was within a, just a few months of working out. And, and so that helps build a confidence in those ways. And then I was like, okay, I really need to shift things up because my social life is dead. I'm 20, maybe 22, 23 years old at the time. And my social life is non-existent. What can I do about it? Instead of just sulking around being depressed all the time, what can I do to take it into my own hands? So what do I do? Nashville was fun. I had a lot of fun in Nashville. Uh, I'm going to look on Craigslist and see if I can find studios. So for, I want to say September, October, November, every single day, I looked online on Craigslist and other places for a space that I could have a studio and I could live out of because this is what I always do. I always want to live at the place that I work because it cuts costs down. I can still write off in taxes a certain percentage of the square footage of the house um, for business purposes and I'm able to consolidate my expenses because the cheapest you could ever hope for in Nashville for a recording space is maybe $1,000, $1,200, something like that. The cheapest you could ever hope for for rent in Nashville, if you're living alone or even with a roommate, it's around five to $800 a month. Um, with a roommate, maybe 1000 or 1200 or so if you're going to live by yourself. So you put those two numbers together, you're at two, at least two grand a month for two separate spaces. There's a lot you can get in Nashville for two grand a month um, if you really know how to look. And especially back in 2011 when I was looking, um, this was like at the peak of the depression in 2008, 2009 when the real estate collapse happened. It really didn't hit rock bottom until around 2011. And so when I'm looking, there's actually a lot of good options um, at some pretty good prices. I was going to buy. I couldn't tell if I was going to buy or rent, but I knew I'd know it when I saw it. And so one day, it was like November, I see this place on Craigslist, no photos, only a description. And I, by the way, I was really crafty in my keywords on Craigslist. I was looking up recording studio. I was looking up recording space, um, music space. Eventually, I came up with music studio. I was like, what would somebody call a studio that didn't know what it was? So I typed in music studio and this place popped up. And the only description mm. was, uh, they had an address, which I looked up. It was a cool place, downtown Nashville. The description was three large rooms, two bathrooms, one shower, and a kitchen. And it said something about studio glass between two of the rooms. And so I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. Or it was basically like three small rooms, one large room. That's what it was. Hmm. And so I was like, this sounds awesome. So I'm going to check this out. I called the guy within 15 minutes of him posting this because that's how often I was checking this. I was obsessive about finding a new place to get the fuck out of Alabama and scheduled a time to check it out the next day. So I was ready to jump on this. Came up to Nashville and checked this place out. I'm dead center downtown. It's in the Sobro neighborhood if, you're, if you know Nashville, um, right behind Crema, the coffee shop. And it's incredible. You walk in, at this long hallway. The whole place is... 2,200 square feet. I've got a big ass room for my bedroom, which is like the biggest bedroom I'd ever had at the time. Um, the first, that's the first door on your right. The second door on your right is the control room um, with glass that overlooks the live room. The live room is pretty small. So I was kind of like, that was the negative. It was pretty small. Uh, maybe, you know, 12 by 14 or 14 by 14 feet, but it had high ceilings. It had like 15 foot ceilings, which I was like, okay, that's a good positive here. But the living room, man, the living room was this huge space six huge windows. Three of them overlooked the gulch. Three of them had an amazing view of the Nashville skyline. And I'm like, I'm, I'm hooked on this place. How much is it a month? $1,250 per month. Hell yes. I signed the lease that night and I move in there three days later. So from him posting it on Craigslist to me moving in three days total, four days total. Wow. So I was ready to bounce. And so I finally moved to Nashville and complete shift. I, I, it was, I can't even begin to explain how much 
my life shifted just by moving from Nashville. Like people talk about Nashville being so oversaturated. Bullshit. It is saturated with some of the most talented people you will ever meet. And those people will help you out. So everyone is so helpful here. I mean, there are of course, bad apples, no matter what, what circles you run in. But I met early on, I met some of the most amazing people that are still, still in my life to this day. This is 2011. When I moved here and I've met so many people that have moved in so many different directions. I, I can't even begin to, to start explaining how much better my life is moving to a city like Nashville than if I would have stayed in Alabama. I, I, I don't know where, where I would be or what I'd be doing if I was still in Alabama, but God, I don't want to think about it. When you were in Alabama, did you get, you know, you'd be at a restaurant or a coffee shop and you'd meet someone and they'd say, what do you do for a living? And you try to explain that you record music. Would you get in Alabama, was it the reaction of, oh, cool, or was it, oh, right, sure you do? Well, first of all, we don't have coffee shops in Alabama, at least not at that time. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you would go to a, a moonshine... Uh, a liquor store. In, a liquor store. I mean, no, I guess what... Was people's there, reactions was, was this. I mean, there were still... People were supportive of the music, but it was like, oh, yeah, man, I'll have to get my cousin to hit you up. Like, it was people you didn't want to record. That was basically it. Right. Uh, and honestly, that's going to be, no matter where you are, you're going to get those types of people, even in Nashville. But dude, Nashville, man, people get it here. People understand where you come from, like what your mindset is. Like they understand being creative. They understand uh, like the entrepreneurial spirit. They understand like there's, it's just completely different than what I would call- Supportive community. Yeah, a supportive community. It, community. And it's there's something called the Alabama mindset that I, that I have had several friends talk about, not just me. I didn't just come up with this. But the Alabama mindset is like, I'm going to stay close to home. I'm going to keep doing the same shit I've been doing my whole life. Um, I'm never going to put myself out there because if I don't put myself out there, um, I don't have the chance of failing. So there's nothing scary about that. So I'm going to stay in this bubble and I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm just going to coast. And I'm not going to say that for all my friends because there's some really cool people that have come out, of Al- come out of Alabama. Like in my high school alone, we had the Alabama Shakes. We had Philip Rivers, which is an NFL quarterback. We had... Um, well, his real name is uh, Jonathan Anderson, but he goes by Anderson East, who's doing pretty well as far as music. I actually heard one of his songs on a uh, like a Toyota commercial the other day, which was cool. But we've definitely had some cool people come out of Alabama, but there's still so many stories of people just living that like mediocre life of no change, no no challenge, nothing to stretch or grow you. And I and I can't tell you, I didn't know it at the time that I was one of those people, but until I got away from that and around people that are actually doing big things and stretching themselves and not accepting mediocrity until I got around that. I, I can't even explain how much that shifted my mindset on how things should be in the world or my outlook on how things should be. I would bet that a lot of people that listened, you know, to the podcast could probably relate to that loneliness, that sort of like non-entrepreneurial community, you know, no one taking you seriously. I know for me, like I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I still live in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, it's different now, but, you know, when I first started out, there was very much that, like, well, you record m- music. Why didn't you get a job at the local bank? I'm I'm going to go talk to someone else at this party now. You're <laughs> not interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think like, that's a tough part about, you know, music, about recording, you know, for a living is it it's uh, in some parts of the country, you know, can't get no respect. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers, number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. 
And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. Well, yeah, I guess tell us about, you know, Nashville. Um, what, what was it like picking your business up and moving it to a brand new city? How did you get clients? Uh, was there a slowdown uh, in work? What was that like? Yeah, so... I moved at a bad time because I'm a man of my word and I still had two months left on my lease in Alabama. So it was a very expensive move. I had to pay my last two months of rent at my old studio, which was $800 a month. And that's 1600 bucks. Then I had to pay my first and last month's rent at my new Mm. studio, which was $2,500 total. And so, you know, that's what, 3,500, four grand, something like that that I had to come up with at that time. And, you know, I was doing okay, but I wasn't like, I wasn't good at finances back then. So uh, just to keep the, the the trail going to the six-figure home studio storyline here, uh, the third year, which is 2011, I ended up making about, oh man, I don't have this hard number. I have the numbers written down somewhere, but it was somewhere between 40 and $50,000. It may have been like 51 tops or maybe been mid to high 40s, but it was around $50,000 that year. But again, where did that money go? Who knows, man? Uh, that was before I knew what personal finance was. That's before I did any sort of budgeting and any sort of record keeping. Of course, my, I gave it to all my all to my CPA and she'd give me some stuff back that I would sign and I would be like, okay, cool, taxes are done. But I didn't really know where it all went. And so at the time, it was a huge, huge chunk of money to me to give up. And I actually had, took a loan out, which I would never recommend, took a loan out to move to Nashville, just a $2,000 signature loan, just so I had some like cushion there because I didn't know what was going to happen. Was there a slowdown? No. I still had, and this is the reason I moved when I moved, I had a one-week gap before my next slew of projects. So I either moved November 1st, or actually Halloween, October 31st. That's when we, I actually moved to Nashville. I, actually, I either moved October 31st, or it was going to be like December or January before I could move. And I was like, financially, it makes more sense to wait, but there's just no way in hell I can physically or mentally get through two more months in Alabama in my current mm. setup. So I just carried all my projects over to Nashville and I had my stuff booked up for the rest of the year. Uh, and I was able to keep my schedule going because I didn't, I mean, God, I recorded bands in Nashville for five years after moving there. I didn't record a single Nashville band. Everything was regional, out of state, out of country by then. And so it was complete shift and it didn't really matter where I lived. I was in the middle of nowhere, Alabama doing it full time. So mm. the location wasn't the issue. It was um, just the mental uh, 
sanity of being around human beings that were my friends. Like I, that was the big, the big thing for Nashville was moving to Nashville. My number one rule for myself when I moved here was say yes to everything, say yes to everything. And so any sort of interaction, any sort of event invite, any sort of request to meet up or anything, I said yes to it. And that sort of mindset led to me saying yes to some random kid hitting me up on Facebook, wanting to come check out my studio like a month after moving to Nashville. I didn't know who this kid was, didn't know anything about him. I would have probably said no in my old life, but since I had yes to everything kind of mentality, he came out, uh, I showed him around, we chatted for like two hours. To this day, he is my best friend. (laughs) Trevor Hinesley, shout out to you, buddy. Um, And I've met so many of my friends in Nashville through him. And so without that one interaction, that one person, I would be in a wildly different place than I even am now. So putting myself around awesome people, they're doing awesome things. Like Trevor co-owns like a five or $10 million company right now. Like being around that type of person, like when I met him, he was still in college. And so being around those types of people with that kind of drive and growing together as entrepreneurs, like that, that stuff is invaluable. You cannot get that in some small putunk town like Lacey Spring, Alabama. Mm. Uh, Like that's what Nashville brought to me was being around people who are doing this, doing it at a high level and so willing and open to helping people out. Uh, And it's just a complete change. That's awesome, man. Well, I guess, you know, I think one of the things, um, I doubt many people that had the gall to listen to a podcast called The Six Figure Home Studio would be concerned about this, but, you know, definitely people in our industry, there's this kind of tug, this push and pull between this stupid phrase, selling out and having a sustainable business. Was there a tension there as as far as, uh, you know, balancing projects and, you know, meeting other people that were entrepreneurially minded and, and starting to sort of learn about business? You know, like, what was that like, this sort of entrepreneurial, you know, wake up of suddenly you're starting to pay attention to your finances, you're starting to get to the point where you're saying no, you know, walk us through that transition of our, you're healthy, you're in Nashville, your business is working, you're still working a lot. What happened that sort of took it to that next level where, you know, you had the gall to write a blog called The Six Figure Home Studio? Yeah, I guess I'll skip. Uh, my first year in Nashville was awesome. It's where I met all my friends. I established some good habits of going to the gym. Um, I was going to the gym five times a week with a very fit individual. And 2013, so 2012 was a good year. But 2013 was a year where I really started to ramp things up and take it seriously. Um, that was the year where I had a round of golf with some random entrepreneur that like lit that entrepreneur flame in me. So up to this point, I actually wasn't that serious of a businessman. I had like basic business instincts. I knew how to manage basic things. I knew how to charge what I was worth. I knew a lot of the important basics, the fundamentals, but I did not know how to uh, ramp that up, maximizing things. So this conversation with this individual, he had started a restaurant with $30,000, which sounds like a lot, but in the world of business, it's not. It's called Chubby's Chicken in Tallahassee, Florida, I think. $30,000 startup, and he had built it out and systemized it to the point where he was not even working at it anymore, period. He was completely removed from the business. He had people managing it. He had systems built where the employees just followed the instructions, and he was bringing in $30,000 per week, 30 to 50 grand per week from that restaurant, from that one location. And so we spent three hours playing golf and talking about his business and all the things he had done and that one thing like lit a fire under my ass as far as like actually sparking that entrepreneur spirit or that entrepreneur flame inside of me. 
And so that is the point. That was like the catalyst that pushed me to seek out the knowledge mm. of you know, all of the things that I need to actually do to get my business uh, to the next level. Started listening to business podcasts, started reading books, found the four-hour work week, which you talked about in your interview. After that year, after starting to study this stuff, starting to read all of these uh, business resources, reading the four-hour work week, um, 2013 started wrapping up on a good point. I think I made 75,000 that year in 2013, but 2014, that was the year that I had ramped that shit up. So funny story is I launched the six-figure home studio April, 2014. I had actually not had a six-figure calendar year at that point. Now, I don't, I don't feel bad about that because the 12 months up to that point from April, 2013 to April, uh, 2014, I had grossed six figures. So I felt good about that. <laughs> I felt qualified to do that. But 2014 was the first year I grossed six figures and I made $124,000 that year. And it was by implementing a lot of the systemization things that I had learned in all the business resources. So it was mm. hiring an assistant because now when I have an assistant, I can take on more work. I can take on mixing jobs. I was able to systemize parts of my process. So remember when I talked about that mixing job I did that I had to do in five days? Well, it took three of those five days just to set the session up. Well, it doesn't take me three days to do that anymore. I, I, I can set up a session by myself in six hours tops, six hours tops to start mixing like a full length. Uh, and even now I have an assistant that does all that for me. So that's even a step up higher than I was before. But learning these basics of systemization, um, automation in some areas, I implemented what's called a CRM, which is a customer relationship management software that I still use to this day to track so many different factors of what's important on your key metrics as far as what are my conversion rates for every quote I send out, what is turned into a paid project. There's all sorts of those areas. And that's what I started to ramp things up was 2014. Well, tell me about more about this chicken guy. You know, I'm uh, like many people listening right now. I'm kind of hungry and I want some chicken, <laughs> but I, I would love to hear... I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that was like when you, you know, you say he sparked an entrepreneurial fire in you. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure up to that point, I had never met a real entrepreneur or at least not talked in depth with a real entrepreneur. Um, like my family's dabbled in business, you know, their lives, but never had a lot of success with that. Um, like, but no, no shade, not casting any shade on them. Like they set me up for my mindset of how to be an entrepreneur and to not follow the traditional path of uh, college and stuff. But he was probably, as far as I can remember, the first in-depth conversation I had with a real entrepreneur that had success in business. But I just think it was being able to, to pick the brain and ask questions about how he did certain things. Because I've always been curious and I've always obsessed over certain things. But I think seeing the power of building out systems and processes in your business and using leveraging other people to do things for you was such a powerful concept to me that I I think that you know I maybe didn't grasp and understand every bit of it but it it let, allowed me to see what it was that I was actually lacking and forced me to go look up a lot of these things that he spoke about and that's actually started with podcasts so I, this is one of the reasons I'm excited to start a podcast was mm. that was the year I subscribed to probably 10 different business podcasts. And I even pulled my friend Trevor, who you know, wasn't really a businessman at that point, uh, into that world. Uh, we had tried starting several things together after that, but that was kind of what started his journey as well, was this conversation with that one man. I think it's really interesting you know, that you mentioned about meeting an entrepreneur for the first time and getting to pick his brain. I think 
you know, one of the things that's a probably a good take home that I want to underline for people from your story um, is the same in my story. You know, I was an unsuccessful business person until I met an entrepreneur, met somebody that, you know, had like 180 employees and uh, they were uh, was this, this family, the Fixeries, uh, Mark and Shane, and uh, they're dentists. They're some of the most successful dentists uh, in my part of the country. And sitting down and talking to them about my small business, I think there's an important take home there for people. If you're listening to a, a podcast called The Six Figure Home Studio and you want to be successful and do art for a living, you probably should meet some other people if you haven't already that are successful at running a small business. To become a, a successful entrepreneur in a vacuum where you've never met another successful entrepreneur or you've never had a long conversation with another entrepreneur, I cannot conceive of how you could possibly be successful without other people that think the way a successful small business owner does. And man, that that was huge for me. And I don't think I give that enough credit um, to just the community that I had when I first started to actually become successful of other people that were successful and that could be like, Chris, why are you doing that? That's really stupid. You should read this book about that particular thing, marketing or email or uh, website. Like how do you present what you do on the internet? You know, it was so valuable to have other people beyond just, you know, a podcast or books to have a real community of other entrepreneurs. That is a huge point. Like you make so many good points there. Uh, We should probably have an episode in the future about actually how to connect yourself with some of these people. Community. Yeah, with fi- yeah. plugging yourself oh, in the community. It. Yeah, it's a good, good idea. We need to write that down. I'll use my construction paper and carpenter's pencil and I'll write community episode. There we go. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that's somewhere we, we should continue to dig in. So you met this guy. Uh, he's the, uh, the chicken baron of <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida. He's the, uh, what's the guy's name in Breaking Bad? Gus. Gus, the, the Hermanos de Polo. Sure. Is that what it was? It was, uh, I don't remember the restaurant name, but I know what you're talking about. Anyways. Um, yeah, so you met a guy that actually knew about business and he started talking to you. Were there any particular books or podcasts or follow-up resources that he recommended or, or, you know, you just, that fire was lit and you started going out and Googling? Yeah, I'm a Googler, man. I mean, he, that was the first time I ever heard the, the book, The E-Myth Revisited, which mm. you're a fan of yourself. That was the first time, time I'd ever heard of it. Uh, that my, the first entrepreneurs I met, that was the first thing they said was you need to read the E-Myth Revisited. And so naturally I read that book about two years later, but (laughs) (laughs) yes, didn't seem relevant to me at the point. I don't know why. Um, the four hour work week was such a good indoctrination into business that it's like for millennials, 30 somethings, late twenties, like if you know any successful entrepreneur our age, like that is their Bible when it comes to business. Yep. Um, there's way better business books than that. But that's such a good and approachable way to like get an, an insight into how that works. A lot of online business or just business fundamentals. But I was just Googling a lot of things. I was somehow I had heard a lot about podcasts up to that point, but I had not actually listened to any. So I was like, you know what? I know there's a, from what I heard somewhere, podcasts have a lot of different categories and you can just pick the category that you want to listen to. I didn't know how to do it. So I just Googled a little bit. I found that I could download some podcast app. And then I signed up for a few business podcasts, which I don't know if I would recommend the same ones now, but there was one called Mixergy. There was one called Starting From Nothing. There was one called 
Um, smart passive income. I still listen to that one to today or still mm. today. But basically, I, I just found a good handful to start at. And every single one of those podcasts led to interview guests that had other podcasts or to other guests that had books or to recommendations for books. There was always something that led to another f- source of information. And it was just a, a web of going out into these different areas until I was very broad in everything I listened to. And eventually a few things caught on that I wanted to pursue and I would go very narrow with my research into that one specific area and go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And then I'd back back out and find out what else am I lacking? Uh, maybe it's email marketing. Maybe it's uh, content marketing. Maybe it's hiring. Maybe it's building out processes that are very repeatable no matter who's doing them. There's, there's all sorts of resources about whatever you're struggling with. And that was kind of the approach I took was just one thing at a time. Don't get overwhelmed. Take it slowly. Pace yourself. Uh, and keep keep it exciting. Yeah. Well, I would bet for a lot of people listening, I, I'm saying that phrase like over and over and over again, but I would guess that a lot of us are highly motivated by wanting to make art. You know, what draws people to a recording studio and wanting to do that for a living is this insatiable desire to create beauty. Mm. And man, I just think that's the coolest thing in the world. But I think that the tension there um, is you want to be just sold out to, I want to make art. I want to make beautiful stuff. I want to make awesome things. And what I find uh, very often, you know, as a mastering engineer, I know tons and tons and tons of studio owners, interact with a lot of them, you know. Um, But what I find is that the real rub is this tension between going all out and committing to the art seems to run against this idea of like, I should probably run my business well. And, And this sort of idea that like, well, I really, you know, I want to keep doing this for a living, but I don't want to do any business stuff. I don't want to learn anything new. And I'm just frustrated that I can't just say, hey, I make art and then clients show up at my door or uh, too many do. And you have a little nervous breakdown like you and I did, (laughs) you know, a couple years ago. There's two answers to this. One is you can, you can balance the two. There are things that if you want to do this for a living, you have no option. You have to know certain business fundamentals in order to do this for a living. Now, how far you take that is up to you. But the further, the further you dig into business and the more you can apply, the more time you're going to actually have to spend on the creative part. So one of the things I'm big on is what is it that only I can do that no one else can do but me? What is the one valuable thing that I bring to the table? And how can I either delegate, which means pass that work off, to other people? How can I delegate those tasks that I'm not the greatest at? Maybe it's drum editing. I am great at drum editing, but there are tons of other guys who are amazing at it too. So why would I spend my time doing that? So I'm going to hire that off to someone else. What about vocal pitch correction? I'm not great at that, honestly. Um, I can do it, but I spend way too much time like overanalyzing. So I can send it to somebody who can do it faster and better and cheaper than me because that's all they do. And so I send that off to somebody else. What about setting up my mix sessions when it comes to mixing? It's a lot of bullshit to deal with, with getting, figuring out what files go where, what gets put into the session in which way, how is it organized, how is it labeled, is everything the way I want it? I can do that, but that's a huge waste of time because I can just put a series of steps. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Step three, do that. Step four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, and then the session's done. If you can do non-creative tasks like that and give them to someone else, which I give to my mixing assistant, you can do so much more actual art, which is the yeah. creative parts that only you can do. 
Amen to that. And I, I think that's where I want to constantly keep bringing this top, the, the, this conversation, this podcast back to is being good at business as a studio owner equals making more art. It's about making more art. Look at and it like this. Like if you're a painter, is painting art? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say so. Is going to Hobby Lobby <laughs> or wherever it is you buy a board and easel and paint and all that shit, is all of that art? I would say no. Maybe certain paint selections I would consider part of the art process if there's very specific things you have to look for in paint. But overall, the actual process of getting shit to paint on is not art. What about when it comes to sell that art? Finding a dealer or uh, listing the art online on Etsy or wherever the hell it is that you would sell art, uh, depending on how you're positioning yourself. Is that art? I would say no. But if you were to pass off those other two tasks to other people that they can do those things and they do them way better than you, that leaves you to just sit there and paint all day long or as much as you want or as little Mm -hmm. as you want. And that frees your mind up to stop worrying about, well, I didn't know it, but I'm out of this color paint. And now I have to stop this painting and go down to Hobby Lobby and pick that paint up. Or, well, I don't have any money, so I guess I got to figure out how to sell this art. Well, I guess I'll Google around until I figure out this, 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 and this, and I'll get my Etsy page set up and I'll look at all the art and this, this, and that. Like there's people that are better at that than you if you're not talented at that. Um, I, I heard this somewhere. I don't know if it's true or not, but there is not a problem in this world that can't be solved by someone else. And I mean, with the exception of probably curing cancer That's or great. something. But just think about your day-to-day problems that you encounter. Someone out there can solve those problems. The other thing I look at is the more money you make as an entrepreneur, the more ability you have to hire out people to take care of those things that you're either not good at or you don't like to do. Yeah. Well, and so back to the self-education thing. So I just reread a book by Derek Sivers called Anything You Want. And Derek Sivers is one of these guys I really want to interview on this show. Um, He's an artist. He's a musician who accidentally started a little tiny company called CD Baby. He's got a great 90s. story. He's got a great story. Yeah, and accidentally sold it for $22 million. Um, Which, he's the, he donated all that money to a charity. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. And he talks about, in the book, um, that business, doing business well, takes as much creativity as any of the fine arts. And I think that's what me and Brian have discovered that's been so fun too is, do I like making art? Do I love mastering? Do I love working with audio? Do I love making records for a living? Oh, yes, absolutely. But I also like working on my business and it's been really fun as I've done that to discover, oh my gosh, the artist in me loves the business aspect as much as any other part of my mind. There's a certain amount of creativity that comes with business that uh, it's hard to explain until you experience it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so for me, not to like hijack this into my story, you know, it was when I came up with the idea for this, like before and after mastering player on my website and started to work on building that out and hiring somebody that was like, wow, this is like some of the most fun creativity activity that I've ever done. Um, and oh my goodness, I'm actually doing business stuff right here. I'm, I'm finding a way to present myself to the world to get more clients. So man, I love, um, that sort of, uh, I, I guess one of my hopes with this podcast is that there are people that are, this is their first sort of businessy thing that yeah, they're trying can, to run. If a, I can be the person that lights that entrepreneur spark in someone else, 
Dude, that is that is what I want to see. Like if if something yes. that I say here or something some story you hear from one of our guests causes you to go crazy about learning what it is you need to do to be successful uh, in your in your studio, whether that is improving your craft or whether that is positioning yourself better, differentiating yourself better, um, systemizing, organizing, all of that stuff. If if what we we anything we do or anything our guests say does that for you, it lights that spark. Awesome. That's what we want. Totally. And that spark is what will drive you through to create the systems, to create uh, what you need to do to get consistent work from month to month, to get to that opus, that amazing project that you're going to get to work on someday that you won't get to if you're not using sound business principles. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. And Emith Revisited, uh, amazing business book, best-selling business book, small business book probably of all time. What kills a small business is a slow month or two. And sound business principles, running your business like a good entrepreneur means building your business in a way that keeps that slow month from ever coming, keeps those projects coming. And what happens to so many artists, I'd say most of them, to most audio engineers is they focused too much on the audio. And what happened was they didn't focus enough on the business and poof, they had a slow month. They couldn't pay their bills. They got kicked out of their studio or they had to sell all their gear to pay all their bills. The old, the old wife says, I told you this wouldn't work. And then you have to go back to your day job. Yep. I've seen that happen. I actually, I made a video about this with that guy that happened with him. He did mm. something very similar. So check, check my, our, our blog for that. Yeah. So, well, I guess wrapping it up, man, what's the best part about doing what you do, Brian? <laughs> Good question. What do you like the most? I would say that without the studio, I would just be in a different place. I don't, I don't even want to, I don't even want to take a second to think about what I would be doing in my life if it weren't for this, for audio, for recording, for mixing, um, for being able to take those skills and step them up into other areas, other business. I do real estate on the side, vacation rentals. I do the Six Figure Home Studio blog, which is one of my main focuses right now, which is why we're doing this podcast. I would say like the focus over the years has shifted from like, what can I do to make more money? <laughs> Which sounds bad, but you know, when you're first starting out, that's a mindset you have to what can I do to make better records to what can I do to make these bands happy, happier to now it's what, what is the thing that I can do to reach the most people possible in a way that adds the most value to people possible. And so I'd say that my life has shifted and done a very big 180 from where it could have gone being in Alabama without a college education. I mean, there's so many different ways it could have gone than where I am now. And I like to think that there's many, many more things ahead of me in my future that are going to be a lot of fun to think about. Well, it's super cool hearing you talk about making better records, adding value. That's, you know, where it ultimately comes back to. That's the driver that makes us want to keep doing what we're doing. And, and uh, I think that's what this podcast is all about is, you know, how can we keep you doing what you're doing for a really long time? keep you making music um, and not have that bad month or not have that health breakdown or that mental breakdown. Ooh. You know, that's the, that's the other thing. A lot of times, you know, you recovered when you lost those files from those clients. A lot of people, man, that drives them out of business and they develop, a, you know, they, they don't do damage control well. First and foremost, they were unhealthy. So they made bad decisions as a result of working too much and not being healthy. And then something bad like that happens and then they develop a reputation that drives them out of business. 
All right, we are about ready to wrap up here. We've got our fave four, famous four. We're not sure what we're going to call it, so we'll replace this with something in the future with <laughs> Echo or something. Famous four, 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 four. So, um, Brian, bringing us up to today, you're successful. Things are great. In the past week or two, what's your happy crappy? What's the happy thing? What's the crappy thing? Yeah, so happy right now is... I've got a group of 50 students going through a beta program that's live four times a week. We meet up online for a lesson, for a Q&A, for group discussions. Uh, everyone can see each other's cameras. Everyone can hear each other. It's like this live classroom that's been a whole lot of fun. We're week five of eight right now. A lot of cool early success stories from some of those guys and girl. And that has been a surprisingly huge source of uh, fun for me as far as like I thought it'd be way more stressful to actually do, but it's been a lot of fun. So uh, it's kind of a kind of a secret project. I didn't really announce that anywhere, uh, other than a little bit in the Facebook group and then to a small list of people. But that is shaping up to be a really cool program. And the crappy right now is I'm in one of those seasons of life where I just am really bad at managing time. So I've just got too many moving pieces right now going on, and so mm-hmm. trying to find what areas I should invest my time into to maximize um, the effect of what I'm doing. It's just not feeling good about the way I've spent the last couple of weeks time-wise and organizational-wise. Gotcha. Well, let's move on to question number two. What is the worst studio purchase you've ever made? And don't say depends underwear for when you were working 40 hours a day. Nope. It would be this API preamp. I still own it today. (laughs) I think it's called an API A2D was the actual model. It was a two-channel API preamp. I must have shot that thing out um, uh, for every single instrument on every single microphone I owned. For the life of me, even to this day, I cannot tell a fucking difference in tones (laughs) between that and my Digi 003 preamp. Um, Fuck that thing. I hate it. And it was $2,000. And it was a really hard lesson learned that in the hierarchy of things that matter, and I'm going to get shot for this, but I just don't think preamps are up there. <laughs> I think microphone, <laughs> I think source tone, I think um, processing. There's just so many other things that matter more than the actual preamp. Uh, and to this day, I hate that thing. Hmm. Interesting. What is the best $100 or less studio purchase you've ever made? Man, I hate I hate to say this. I hate this answer so much. But I bought like the very first Slate drums pack in 2009 when they used to ship it to you from Yellow Matter Entertainment in a <laughs> manila envelope and it was in a CD. And they had a note in there which was I'm to this day I'm pretty sure it was fake that just said every single sample is encoded with your unique code. So if you share these with people we'll know that it was you and we'll sue you or something like that, you know? And it was BS. Wow, what, what great customer service. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like a brilliant way to keep people from sharing the samples because I couldn't find them anywhere online, so I bought them. Um, I'm not going to mm. get into my pirating, thieving, shitty, shitty days of my 2009, but I've covered that on the blog already. But I bought them and it was like 49 bucks, I think. And to this day, people still use those samples in their mix and I call them basic bitch samples. So... That $100 or less purchase will not be good for you. But at that time, it was like the best drum tones anyone had at the time. And it was a good way to set myself apart from my local competitors. So hmm. I would say it started my snowball off in a nice place in the early days. 
Awesome. Well, for this next question, I suspect most of our listeners, if they've listened to previous episodes or read your blog at all, will know what you're going to say. But let's say there's a hypothetical 19-year-old named Billy who wants to start a studio. Um, He's got red curly hair, freckles, and uh, armpit stains in his t-shirt, and he's considering going to audio school. Should he go to audio school? I'd like to think that by the time this podcast episode is out, my video about this will have gone live, which I've already recorded and edited. But no, I'm staunchly against it. I say there's just a way better way you can spend that money for audio engineering. If you want to go to college for something else, do it. For audio engineering, no, get a real world education. Preach. Preach. Question number five. I think we call this fave four, but we have five questions. I was going to call you out on that. It's the fave five. Fave five. It says fave four in my document right here. Well, change the document, sir. I'll have to edit that. Gotcha. Fave five. What ask do you have of our listeners? Yes, I do have a good ask here. If you've gotten this far in the episode, kudos to you. I have this ask of you. We need feedback. We've talked about it in earlier episodes. We need feedback. We're in an echo chamber right now. Chris and I, we're recording these three episodes before launching. So we don't even know if this is something you're going to (laughs) like. We're just hoping it is. But based off these first three episodes, email us podcast at the sixfigurehomestudio.com. That is spelled out S-I-X, the sixfigurehomestudio.com. Email us because we want to know what your thoughts are. What sort of guests would you like to see on the show? Do you want to just tell us that we're doing an awful job? Do you just want to tell us that we're doing a great job? Do you want to motivate us? Do you want to knock us down a peg? Are we too cocky about things? Do we feel like, do we act like we know too much about business? Do we act like uh, dicks? I don't know. I I feel like we've been pretty nice, but whatever it is, like craft some sort of email, whether it's on your phone right now, you're probably doing laundry or you're driving to work. Uh, Don't text us if you're going to work or email us if you're going to work, but email us podcast at the six figure home studio.com and give us your ideas for shows for interview guests for anything just give us some sort of feedback just let us know how we're doing that's all we want we just want to know how we're doing and what we can do to improve um, yeah if you hate my voice um, i can take vocal lessons if you want me to could you hear a difference that i upgraded to the electro voice re20 for this episode versus my akg 414 for previously please tell me yes because i really can, can we talk can we ring the gear slut alert right now <laughs> There we what? go. That's the gear slut yeah. alert. What you just heard go. was the gear slut alert. Yeah. So basically we just want feedback. That's all we want. Podcast at the six figure That is all feedback um, or encouragement. You know, if you are thinking, you know, like I said, so, sort of, uh, and like Brian was saying, I think our dream here is that we hear from people that are like, boy, I was trying to run a studio. It was driving me into the ground. It made me miserable. I started listening to your podcast. I started learning about business I'm doing 10 times the projects I did before. I'm twice as sane. I'm actually making money and I can make records for the long haul. Thank you guys so much. That sort of encouragement of, of uh, that we're sort of your virtual entrepreneurship community is freaking awesome. Uh, and, and that's the juice we need to keep this train rolling. And that is it for the third episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy days to listen to this uh, this episode along with the other two. Hopefully you listen to the first two of this, um, especially thanks to those of you who binged all three episodes in a row. Uh, we have right now planned a planned gap, meaning 
Uh, it may be a while before more episodes come out because we want to gather feedback from you, the listener, to know uh, what, what kind of topics you want to hear about, what kind of uh, people you want us to interview. Uh, do something to let us know where you want us to go from here uh, and expect to hear some more episodes from us in the near future. But these three episodes were our early seed uh, just to kind of get this thing started, get the ball rolling, get the, the podcast out and start getting some feedback from you guys. All of the show notes, by the way, uh, are on the website. All you do is go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash one for episode one or slash two or slash three. It's just the number. So the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash three for the podcast show notes for this episode. And I know every single damn podcast on this stupid earth says this, but I'm going to say it anyways. Leave a rating and review. And the only reason I say this is because the gods of iTunes looks at new podcasts and they say, hmm, is this podcast shitty or is it not shitty? Uh, and the only way they know that is through their computer algorithms and all this data they look at. And they look at a bunch of different things, but they look at number of downloads, which we now have no control over really, uh, number of reviews, which you are the ones that have control over, or number of five-star ratings or whatever. I would love to see you give some reviews on the show because um, that, that keeps us going, man. Uh, if we get some ratings, some reviews, uh, some early uh, traction, iTunes says hey, this podcast may be decent. We'll actually feature it in new and noteworthy or potential guests who look us up may say, oh, this podcast has a lot of good reviews already and it's brand new. Maybe we'll actually do an interview on this show. Maybe they actually have a decent fan base. So yes, I'm being that guy. Leave an actual rating and an actual review in iTunes. But at the very least, just give us an email. Podcast at the sixfigurehomestudio.com. We read every single email. Whoa.